Hey, it's the holiday season. We're approaching the end of the year. And to celebrate, I wanted to do a top 10 countdown of the top 10 episodes that we've had on this podcast of all time. And today you're going to get number seven, which is episode 19 with Joseph Bramante and Heschel Mangle. And one thing I will say about this episode is this ended up being our number one episode for quite a while until our current number one episode overtook it. So even though it is at number seven right now, it had a very long stretch at number one. So hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. This is one of our Ask the Expert episodes, and we have two amazing people on the line with us today. Um, a guy with a ton of experience in this and other businesses, Joseph Bermonte, and a very motivated, energetic, aspiring investor, Heschel Mangle. So first, Joseph is a co-founder and CEO of a Houston-based Triarch Real Estate Partners, a wholly integrated multifamily investment company. He purchased his first multifamily property in 2011, sight unseen while working as a business team lead for ExxonMobil in Papua New Guinea. Today, working with business partners Kerry Brenneman and Deborah Newsom, he has grown a portfolio of over 1,100 units, increasing NOI by over 80% on average within the first 48 minutes post that excuse me, 48 months, 48 minutes would be a stretch. You know, I, I'd, I'd oh. love to see anybody do that, but uh, 80% within the first 48 months post-acquisition. So that said, Joseph, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. And 48 minutes would definitely be a stretch, though. Imagine if you, if you bought it right, you could do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's my goal right now is 80% NOI increase in 48 minutes, if anybody can do that. So... Yeah, that's that's very impressive background. You know, I, I think uh, you know we, we've talked a little bit before, but uh, you know, very impressed by by what I saw. I've, I've heard you on a couple of podcasts before, and excited to to talk a little more with you today. Absolutely. So, why don't, why don't you start by telling us your background and history up until the point where you decided to actively pursue apartment investing? So. I'm a civil engineer by trade. I originally wanted to be an architect. And then after the first semester, I realized that wasn't for me. Went mm -hmm. into civil engineering because if I, if I couldn't design the building, I at least wanted to hold it up. And did the traditional engineer career path. I was headed towards a consulting firm route. And I'd worked, you know, put myself through college, worked during the summers. So I had my my fair share of physical labor and, and knew that, you know, I wanted to stay in school and, and, and get my engineering degree. So got the degree and then I was very fortunate that right before graduating, Exxon came to town. It was Exxon and Chevron at our career day. And I interviewed with both of them and gave me offers and decided to go with Exxon. And yeah. so three months prior to graduating, I'd made this drastic kind of fork in the road, drastic turn and went from a consulting engineer route to a, you know, ownership project management route. And one of the big reasons for that was when I was, you know, when I was interning at these consulting firms, it was frustrating that you would, you would do the work, you would design this structure, mm -hmm. whatever it was. And then three, four months later, they'd send you some pictures back of it actually installed, but you never actually got to go to the job site. Yeah. You were just like a guy behind a desk. So I was excited about that opportunity, but Exxon opportunity to travel and fast forward, you know, I'm with the company for five years. I'm traveling overseas with them. I, I was living in Australia for a year and in Papua New Guinea for two years. And I started with them at the end of 27, 2007, 2008. So the crash was just happening. And I moved overseas in 2008, nine timeframe. So I was really kind of 
just missed all of the news that, you know, we went through this global or this, you know, uh, housing crisis. Right. And, you know, in Australia, they don't really report the housing crisis so much in America. So <laughs> anyway, I say all that because I was rather oblivious to it, except that all of my managers, every time they would rotate back and forth from the job site, they would take their four months or their four weeks off and four weeks back on, they always seem to own a new rental property. And I never could figure that out. And so then I started doing some research and they were, you know, telling me that the rental properties are the way to go. So I came up with a, a spreadsheet. I was going to buy 80 foreclosed houses. I needed a wow. small loan of about $3 million. Okay. This is my first time investor, by the way. Yeah. And so I'm calling all these banks while living in Papua New Guinea. And they're all telling me no, basically. Some of them mm-hmm. nicely, some of them not so nicely. <laughs> and right, right. Uh, finally, finally, one of them says, go buy an 80-unit apartment complex. I couldn't afford an 80-unit apartment complex, but just the idea of buying one was an idea, a seed that never been planted before. And so then I read some books and that's kind of how I got my start. Next thing you know, six months later, I'm buying a small 26-unit apartment complex, sight unseen while still living in Papua New Guinea after only just reading you know, a handful of books. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. So you know, what, what attracted you to apartment complexes and, and, and what's, what's your why for, for doing that? So what attracts me is a, you know, just the creativity, the problem solving about it. There, every property is unique and I hate doing the same thing over and over and over again, which is why I don't do property management. It would drive me crazy. But the asset management side of things, the acquisition side, going into all new deals, trying to solve the puzzle of, okay, what do I need to do to make this property work? That's very exciting. And sure, you're using a lot of the same tips and tricks and techniques, but it's always in a different combination yeah. of one another. So that's why I, I like the industry. And my why is is the freedom, you know? So you know my background, but a little bit more about that first 2016 property is, you know, I almost went bankrupt on that first deal. And throughout the whole thing, in the, you know, right at the very beginning of purchasing that first property, I ended up getting fired from Exxon. I lost my job. Mm. And so immediately, you know, I go from this place of, you know, very secure, never, you know, never lost a job or anything before. And yeah. then all of a sudden I don't have that security. And it's, it's a, it's a weird feeling. It's, it's not, it's not a good feeling. I'll tell you yeah, that. I, I can imagine. But what multifamily did was it gave me that freedom back to not only for of financial freedom, but just of my time. You know, if I wanted to take a vacation for three months, like I did a couple of years ago and just took off to Italy, I can do that. And so that's my why for multifamily is, is the freedom, not just for myself, but also for the others, but for my other investors, the freedom that I give them, you know, one of my investors, he's, you know, he's another W2 high earner as well, but he makes just as much money on passive investing with us. So he's just got this extra comfort that, you know, like he works because he wants to work, but not because he needs to work. And uh, when you get to that place, it's, you know, a lot of interesting things can happen for you. Yeah. You know, and I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite quotes is a Zig Ziglar quote that says, you can get whatever you want in life if you help another, enough other people get what they want. You know, I think that's, that's actually crucial in this business. And you're, you're talking about your investors and helping them get what they want, helping them achieve the financial freedom. And, and in my mind, I think that's what this is really about. You know, it's, it's about helping other people, you know, get to where they want and achieve their financial freedom goals. And along the way, you know, so do we. Well, why don't you uh, give us a, a brief rundown of you know any one of the deals that you've done before or, or, or larger projects 
Uh, just to give us an idea of what uh, you and your, your company does. Yeah, so we do heavy value-add renovations. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, we're doing a 37000 per door renovation across 220 units, which many people wouldn't have touched, you know, and, and I, I had to be honest, there weren't that many bidders on the bidders list, uh, buyers list for that deal when it hit the market, because it, you know, it was priced to a point where the only way that makes sense is somebody's going to either scrape it and redevelop it or somebody's going to, or somebody's going to do a big heavy value add. And so that's, that's what we're known for in the mm -hmm. market. My first deal was a 30,000 per door renovation. So right out of the gate through necessity, uh, I, I learned these skills of doing these big value adds and, and applying the techniques and, and project management tools I learned at Exxon to, to do a really good job. So what we do and what we specialize in are, are the heavy value adds where we go in and, you know, like for this particular property, we are, we are moving walls around, creating mm -hmm. new floor plans, are modifying existing floor plans, which is, you know, expensive. Yeah. And we're, you know... For this particular property, we're doing everything except the electrical. So the electrical is staying in place. Every other system is getting modified by us or impacted, either moving walls or retexturing walls, adding all new plumbing, washers and dryers, updating AC systems, completely gutting the kitchens. And they're, those are very risky deals. But if you structure them correctly, you can really mitigate a lot of the risk. And if you underwrite them correctly as well, and yeah. you got to leave yourself plenty of cushion because things happen that you just can't plan for. One of the things that happened to us on this deal was we closed in the morning and that evening we got hit with a flash flood in Houston. We lost 20 units. Wow. Uh, so immediately we're 20 units down, 10% of our units are down uh, and we have to vacate them because they, they took on water. We had to take the sheetrock up, dry them out. And so that was a, a big ordeal and that was not part of the plan. You know, nowhere mm -hmm. in the performer that I say, oh yeah, we're going to have a flash flood. We're going to lose 20% or 20 units and we're going to get to work. That, that wasn't part of the plan at all. And so you're just constantly having to think on your feet and make adjustments as you go and accelerate where you need to accelerate. So we yeah. actually weren't planning on starting until January 1 because typically the way we like to do these big rehabs is we'll, we'll take them down and then we'll spend the next two to three months just finalizing our plans, make sure everything is what we thought it was mm -hmm. before we pull the trigger and, and get started. Instead, we got started on the second day and you that got, was... You got 20 vacant units immediately and you have to do something with them. So, well, I mean, from, from one perspective, you know, you got 20 vacant units and all of a sudden, you know, you, you got a good place to start immediately. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. That's not... Uh, Probably not. What yeah. You, what it, it wasn't. The, it wasn't ideal, and that you know, one of the issues with big renovations is how you section off the different sections, different areas of the property that you're renovating. Mm -hmm. With with a big value had renovation, you're typically going to be increasing the rent substantially. You know, four hundred, five hundred dollars. In our case, it's a five hundred dollar rent increase. Those are two different profiles, and so one of the issues you have is that you're not going to be able to mix those profiles easily. So you've got to section off the area of the property so that it's, you know, they're, they're somewhat secluded from one another. In mm -hmm. our case, it was three properties that combined for 220 units. They're all on the same street. So it was a small portfolio in a way. And our plan was to start on the smallest property. Instead, the one that took water was the largest property. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, an unfortunate thing. But 
you know, we pushed through it. We had flood insurance, so we're okay on that. That just got approved, so that's going to be very helpful. But still now we're doing the impacts of just the the increased vacancy beyond what we originally thought and recovering from that. And then we got hit with COVID, yeah. which nobody could have planned for, but that slowed down leasing as well. So there's all these things that you have to accommodate for and and deal with. And, you know, you build in contingencies and there's other tricks you can do like, like de-scoping, you know, that's kind of a, a last ditch contingency that anybody can do is you just, you just don't do all the units. You know, mm-hmm. you do whatever units you have money for, but you do them the best you can. And then that way you're, you're selling with some fat on the bones. Right, right. So that, that's an example of a property where you have undergoing right now. So now I assume, is this, is this Houston area that you bought this one in? Yeah, these okay. are all of our, most of our properties are in Houston. We got three out in Corpus. We're looking out in other areas, but for the most part, we buy within say three to four hours of, of Houston. Okay. Now what's, what's the average price per door in particular in this 220 unit? What's the price per door? Cause 37,000, that's, that's a big number. So we bought that at 75,000 a door, okay. but it was in a, a great location in Houston. It was the, it was the only blight in the whole market. It was the only mm-hmm. property that wasn't up to par. Everything else was fully renovated. So this was the last one to go. Yep. And that's what we were able to do what we did. So a lot okay. of it is location. We had a fully renovated property at the same level that we were renovating to right mm-hmm. next door. So it really Perfect didn't comp. take that much creativity yeah. to figure out that, you know, if I just copy what that guy did, I'll get the same result. Yeah. I mean, 500, 500 rent increase. That's, that's a significant uh, value add right there. And, and the reason I ask, I mean, we, we purchased stuff in the, in the Carolinas and our last two purchases, we, we purchased at less than 37,000 a door, you know, so you know, for us to come in and do a 37,000 a door swing on that, you know, it pro- juice probably wouldn't be worth the squeeze, but it looks like, it looks like you're all in about 110, 112, which for Houston, I imagine still a pretty good deal. So yeah, no, it, it is. And, and that's a long-term hold for us. We plan on recapping the deal. So the investors will leave and we'll bring in some new investors and we'll hold it for another 10 years or so. But that's, you know, we are long-term holders and we already know who the next buyer is. It's us. It's just finding the next equity to replace them. So as long as we feel comfortable holding the deal for, you know, a long period of time, then we'll go ahead and, and do a, a big renovation like that. But there is deals we've looked at, you know, recently, we've looked at fully renovated deals that, you know, you've got to be careful with the level of renovation they do and mm-hmm. just the you know, the properties will just age out. You know, you get too old of a property and you end up, you're paying a premium for it and you run the risk of being the last person to own that property and not being able to offload it. So just the ability to exit from a deal is something that should be front and center whenever you're making a decision to buy. Nice. So uh, next question for you, what's next for you and for Triarch Real Estate Partners? A new development. It's something we've been working on for since 2016. We're breaking ground on a, it's about four to 500 unit property mm-hmm. by the end of this year. We just had a meeting with the architects yesterday and redid the site map, which I tell you what, those site maps, you know, we take it for granted on the acquisition side. You just, you're, you're given a site map that the buildings are where the buildings are, but the amount of thought that goes into putting those buildings exactly where they are mm-hmm. is just mind blowing. I never, I mean, we've had so many meetings on site maps and getting the efficiency of the site. I've just learned a ton. Yeah. So new development is a lot of fun. It's very long winded. So I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to be 
something that I do. It's going to be one of the things that we do. Acquisitions is always going to be our bread and butter because you can just do them a lot faster. You can grow a lot faster. But a new development is longer winded. If if you're breaking ground on one deal every two years, then, you, then you're doing really good, yeah. uh, at least by my book. Because it's it'll take you three years from start to finish to get a property from ideation to lease up. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's incredible. I, I mean, I know new new developments. You know, I've got a friend here. Uh, actually, had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. He, he's been doing a lot of new developments in the DC area, bringing capital to those deals. And I think the numbers the numbers make sense. I think the returns that uh, the investors are getting, you know, makes sense to to go that route. Yeah. Well, you know, we got into it back in 2016 because we saw the spread between Class A and fully renovated you know, workforce housing as, as decreasing. And we mm-hmm. kept seeing that, that the gap in those two eventually was going to get to a point where it made more sense to develop than to, to buy and renovate. Yeah. And that's what we see now. You can, I mean, it's a very close call in some deals. Do I renovate this or do I scrape and, and, and redevelop it? Yeah. And being able to have that skill set to do both gives you a lot of flexibility when looking at sites. Yeah, and, and you're able to pivot when the market changes. You, you've got, Absolutely. I mean, you've got your acquisitions thing running, you know, like a, like a well-oiled machine, you've got experience with development. And if there is a, a shift in the market in, in, in the Houston area, you're able to pivot and go one direction, focus one direction more than the other. I yeah. like it. I mean, and we've got, you know, so we've got two deals right now that are in the pre-planning stages right now for redevelopment where we're going to scrape it and put a mid-rise on them. Mm-hmm. And their deals, they were acquisitions that we purchased in 2014 and, and my first one in 2011. Mm-hmm. So now it's just nice that we've, we're getting those skills mm-hmm. so that we can go ahead and, and be the developer as well and continue part of that, that life cycle of the property. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, let's uh, introduce our, our, our next guest. We have Heschel Mangal here. Just a little bit about him. He came into the multifamily industry with zero knowledge or background. He just heard about it from a friend whose family was in the industry. At the same time, he was really struggling with a nine-to-five job, working as an employee at a desk, and he knew something had to change, both for himself and his family. He moved back to his hometown of Cincinnati and within 12 months was owner and manager of a 52 units with two full-time staff members, all in the affordable housing space. He works with local social services to ensure safe, secure, and affordable housing for the residents at his property. So that said, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's it's absolute pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, I love that, uh, you know, you, you've got 52 units under your belt. Um, and, you know, when you reached out to me, you, you know, I, I was really impressed. You're like, hey, everybody has something to learn. You know, I, I've got a couple of deals under my belt, but I, but I still want to come on and, and, you know, asking people some questions. So absolutely love that about you, you know, always learning, you know, you, you impressed me and, you know, I put you at the head of the pack to be honest with you. So Thank here you. we go. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background and history uh, up until you decided to pursue uh, apartment investing? Yeah. So I grew up here in Cincinnati, left home fairly young as grew up in a, in a, in a Jewish religious family. And there wasn't really much um, education for me once I got into my teenage years here. So my parents would send us all yeah, out of town to to Jewish schools. So kind of was pretty much out of town since I was about 12 years old. Landed up back in, in New York where I spent some time, got married and, and settled over there in New York, in New York City. Was a teacher for a couple of years, teaching okay. in, in, lo- in local schools, and then pivoted a bit and then started working in a, in a company that did you know online sales, a lot of the Amazon, eBay, you know Walmart type of 
of, of products. Was there for about a year and just wasn't really working out for me. Just the the type of lifestyle that it was and the in, in you know the drive that I had each day was getting less and less to come to work. And just happened to be talking to a friend whose whose family was in this business of real estate and really at that time had absolutely no idea what the industry was all about, had no, you know, familiarity or background from myself, my education, or anyone in my family that was in the industry. So you could just kind of open my eyes a bit to the possibilities and type of lifestyle that, that that's available and what you can create for your family down the line mm-hmm. through the real estate industry. And at that point, I was hooked and I just did whatever I could to learn as much as I can about the industry, starting from, you know, on my, on my commute to work, anytime that there was a found a sign, you know, a for sale sign or a we buy houses sign, just start jotting down those phone numbers and during lunch breaks, calling, calling those numbers and, you know, without even really knowing what I'm supposed to say or what I'm looking for, but just getting that idea of just learning to people that, yeah, yeah, learning. And from there, you know, reading books and listening to podcasts and getting on forums and just talking to people and picking up as much information as I can. And my first step was getting, you know, a couple single family houses back in Cincinnati with some partners that we worked on, you know, just renovating and flipping. And eventually the more I learned each, each, you know, kind of growth spurt, I guess I had in the learning. And that led me to, you know, multifamily investing and specifically now in affordable housing. And that's kind of where, where then I started to try to pick up steam a bit. Nice. Nice. So you, you learned from a friend, you know, about multifamily or about real estate in general, what was it that appealed to you specifically about it? There was two parts of it, really. It was, it was the lifestyle mm-hmm. as well as, you know, what it can do for my family down the line. Right. And, um, both of them really appealed to me and what I was looking for at the time. Um, recently married, had a young family and just being able to, you know, kind of pick my battles and know where I'm at during the day and kind of be in control of, of my destiny to a certain extent more than, you know, at the time that I was doing the job and I was sitting there nine to five. It just wasn't working out for me in terms of I felt like I was basically owned by somebody else and I belonged to somebody else and I needed to be somebody that can, you know, I don't like having to ask permission to do things or being told no for things. And I mm-hmm. just wasn't working out for me at, at that point. I needed to be able to know that I can prioritize my schedule and, and you know, prioritize my tasks and being able to grow into something that I can build on my own as well as what I can build for my family down the line and being able to leave them, you know, not, not struggling and not wanting for anything, but knowing that I can leave them something. And, you know, my first, my first idea really, and, and what he was telling me is like, Hey, you can go buy a house now. You know, you just had a baby. Yeah. You can go buy a house now, put it on a, on an 18 year mortgage or something, a 20 year mortgage. And by the time your kid is ready to go to college, you know, you it's own that house pretty clear. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It pays for college. It could pay for, for, uh, you know, a wedding, you could pay for a down payment on your kid's house, you know, and that kind of really, you know, blew me away in that point to really like, it's, it's, uh, obviously it's a business and, and every day we have something different, but the, the basic, you know, f- foundation and mentality of what it can do really opened yeah. up my eyes. Well, I love that, uh, you know, as soon as you heard about it, you know, light went on and you started immediately educating yourself and where, where a lot of people pause, you, you took action. You, you bought your couple of single families and then, then got into some larger deals. So, you know, good, good for you. And I'm excited to see what the, the future brings for you. Well, Heschel, well, we have Joseph on the line here. Uh, what would you like to ask him? Awesome. Yeah, Joseph, I actually listened to a couple of podcasts of yours as well. And I'm reading some quite extensive notes that, I, that I've written on the podcast that you've been at. So I appreciate all the, all the value that you, that you bring. So you spoke about in the beginning here, 
about being able to kind of get past your property management and the day-to-day kind of operations of dealing with, you know, maintenance and, and residents, et cetera, and being able to, you know, scale enough that you can now focus on asset management and putting the puzzle pieces together and developing the business. So what I'm really curious to know is kind of what, what was the key to your ability to scale to that extent, to your scalability? Were you able to, you know, pass on those tasks and, and that part of the, of the business to somewhere else where you can now just no focus on, on developing the business? Yeah, great question, Heschel. And, you know, it was great hearing about your story. And I can tell right away, you've got a lot of drive and you're very curious. And being curious as an issue will get you far. And so I think that's... Uh, yeah, I commend you on that, and you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how you grow. Uh, but to answer your question, the best, easiest way to learn how to pass on those tasks, those activities, is to never take them on in the first place. So I never, I've never done property management. I've contracted out property management, and I just managed the manager from the very beginning. As one of the skills that we learned at Exxon was manage the manager. I don't need to know how to do their particular skill. I just need to be able to manage them, hold them accountable, and make sure that they're doing the things that they say they're going to do and they're hitting the targets that we agreed they would hit. So if you just have a good property manager, you shouldn't be doing property management at all. But I understand that you're in a different situation. You've got 50 units. And with 50 units, it's challenging to outsource property management because it is expensive. And and that's one of the challenges that you, you run into on smaller properties, which is why I always recommend passives and others to go to a at least 100 units or more because the property can more easily afford professional management, outsourced management so that you're not in that day-to-day. Because as you're seeing right now, it's a very time-consuming thing to deal with residents and do property management. You know, For people starting out, they need to make the decision right away. Do you want to be a property manager? And do you want to be focused on the property management side of syndication or do you want to be focused on the asset manager side of syndication? And I've seen people do it successful both ways. But what I've noticed is that the guys who focus on the property management side, they tend to get really bogged down on the property management and can't grow as fast because it is so labor intensive. And there's just a lot, there's a lot to learn in property management. There's a lot of rules and fair housing and whatnot you got to deal with. So I just avoided it altogether and decided, you know, asset management was for me and I outsourced it. Was that something that you were able to outsource, you know, from the get-go, starting from, you know, that first property that you got? Or was it once you, once you got larger, that's where you were able to pass it on? No, I outsourced it from the very beginning. Even on 26 units, I was able to outsource it. We used initially a single-family uh, property manager. Mm-hmm. And he went in and he was managing our property very badly, I'll say it. But still, he was managing it for us. And then we brought in professional management. Now, of course, our money went down. We didn't collect as much money because we had a management fee we were having to pay. But at the time, for us on the cash flow side, it wasn't a big deal because both me and my partner both had our W-2 incomes coming in. I was without work for about six to nine months, but then got another job. That said, the first deal isn't necessarily the deal that's going to become your retirement nest egg or anything like that. Like This is the deal that you're going to learn on. You're going to cut your teeth on. This is the deal you make the mistakes on because when you make the mistakes on the small deals, they're recoverable. You make a mistake on a big deal, it's not as recoverable. Okay. So the good thing about your situation now though is that you're learning property management. So when you do eventually outsource it or if you do outsource it, you know what it takes to manage a property. So I don't even know 
fully what it takes. I've never signed a lease, not a single lease for a single resident in 10 years. Uh, so you, you know what that's about and the challenges and everything that come with it. So I commend you for that. You're definitely getting some valuable lessons on the property management side. Yeah. I'll just echo. We, we have three properties that have less than 50 units. And what he says is absolutely true. It's really hard to find a good solid property manager with, with that unit count. You know, most of the the professional and and very very large property management companies that are going to bring new economies at scale to the job, they like to focus on the hundred and plus. You know, so finding one of those companies that's willing to take on a twenty or a forty or a you know fifty unit deal is difficult, and you're going to pay a lot more for it. You know, as a percentage of your your total income. So, um, agree with him one hundred percent on on everything. Yeah, that was awesome. So it, without having actually done then, you know, management and um, also from your past podcast, I've heard you talk about, you know, managing the managers and make sure they're keeping up with KPIs. How were you able to, you know, create the, that system where you're able to effectively manage them without kind of intruding on them and, you know, micromanaging them, but being able to stay, you know, aloof and above, but at the same time being able to hold them accountable? Well, I would say it takes a lot of time and a lot of trust. Uh, I was a bit unique and the first couple of deals we did were very big, heavy value add deals and they shined beautifully. Now, the first deal I was trying to micromanage them. I was all in their business. I was constantly, you know, getting into operations. So we, we've, we've put processes in place. We've got a leaderboard for all of our properties. So I can look and have basically a scoreboard. I can see all the properties ranked on, on a Monday from top to bottom. I just focus on the guys at the bottom. And the ones who are on the top, they're already meeting our KPIs or doing well. They're doing what they're supposed to do. I can see the ones at the bottom. I get a quick update on those. And what used to take me an hour, now it takes me 10 minutes. So it's, it's a gradual process to get all those systems in place. And then you've got to have some trust in your team. And then for us, I mean, my, my product manager team, they're all partners in the company. So we all have a vested interest in making sure that Triarch as a whole does well. Nobody's looking out for themselves. It's all looking out for Triarch. So you're bringing these the other, you know, third-party management companies in as partners in your deals. So here's how that process evolved. At first, the first deal, it was strictly fee-based. They were contractors. Mm -hmm. The second two deals, as a way to negotiate a lower management fee, I offered them you know, a couple percentage of the GP side of the deal in order to you know, entice them on the back end. And then after, I think the fourth deal, we had a falling out. There was another partner that was not a good mix. And, and you'll, you'll encounter this. You're going to have JVs along the way and not all the JVs work out and maybe some of them partially work. And, you know, so it's just, you might just have one or two guys or gals in the group that aren't a mesh. So we had that situation happen. And so on the fourth deal, we all just individually did it, uh, did a deal together, contracted to each other. And then by the fifth deal, me and the two partners that were a good mesh, we came together and formed Triarch. The other partner is no longer with us. So that's kind of how that evolved. You know, there, there has to be a vesting process. You're not going to go right away and be like, hey, let's form a company. I'll give you 30%, whatever. I mean, you don't know these people. And I believe that trust is earned. So, and, and it's earned through time and it's also earned through performance because it takes a while for you to really get to know somebody and see you know, how their character is 
and then also to determine you know how their performance is so you want to take them through the ringer on a few deals not just you know you know you're going to have easy deals that any manager company can perform well on so where these guys really earn their stripes is on these really hard deals nice nice what else you got Heschel? Um, I, I'm looking also at, you know, I'm, I want would love to get your take on it about, you know, now, especially that you're getting more into development and ground up general and you're, you know, you're doing all these heavy value add. How, how do you kind of look at a piece of property and be able to, you know, see your vision or see, you know, where's the potential value and, you know, reconfiguring and redeveloping and doing all these, you know, heavy value add programs, you know, is it just, second nature or you're you're born with it either you have the eye or you don't or kind of how how did that how does that process work well to answer the last part of the question no it's not second nature no i wasn't born with any kind of gift i don't have an eye for for that i have an idea of what's possible but i also surround myself with a lot of really good people who have other ideas and together we come up with the right idea you know when you do these big value adds it's not a one person team I got myself, there's a GC who can tell me what's physically possible, what it's going to cost. We've got designers who do this for a living and they'll do renderings for you. We've got other designers who do just the rendering, the landscaping for us. We've got a branding company. We've got the operations team that are telling us, okay, well, you know, from an operational perspective, this would add value or this wouldn't add value. So there's a lot of inputs that are going into the the vision of what's possible on a property. And then to address the underwriting side though, so that's a, they're, they're kind of done independent of each other, right? So what I just described is done after you've closed and when you're getting ready to start, you know, knocking down walls and, and you know, putting paint on walls. So that's when you got the whole team, really the creative input meshing together. But in the front end, it's based on a lot of experience. You've got to have a really good GC, and that's when it pays to be local. So, you know, we all know a lot of syndicators who are buying all over the country. Mm-hmm. And what you might notice is they typically aren't doing big value adds because when it comes to value add, uh, a GC can make or break your deal. And if you happen to choose the wrong GC, like, like I did on my first deal, I chose a very expensive GC initially before we fired him and got a new one. But it's very easy to choose GCs with different price points you might accidentally hire a single family GC who's going to have a different price point than somebody who's doing multifamily. You know, you have them try and install some single family appliances or single family fixtures and whatnot in your, and your multifamily unit and you're really going to pay for it. So being local, knowing who the, the, the competitors are when it comes to the GC bidding and, and getting in good with them uh, will definitely pay dividends for you. If you decide to go the big heavy value add route, and then just doing deals. So like this 37,000 total renovation we're doing, we've never done anything this big, but we've done the individual scopes on other projects before. So it was just a combination of all those scopes together. We had benchmarks from other projects, which is something that you need to start doing now is even as you're just underwriting, you might not even close on a deal, but you'll get, you'll walk the property with the GC and he'll give you a general bid of what it's going to cost. You should hold on to that number. Hold on to those those GC bids you get because that gives you an insight as far as what it costs so that when you're doing your underwriting, you can know without even asking the GC based on what previous conversations and what kind of metrics you've come up with of roughly what it's going to cost you. 
And then you can decide to walk it with the GC or not afterwards to get a better picture of what it's going to cost. And then just make sure you're leaving yourself contingency and you've kind of got, you know, for us, we, we've got our primary scope and our kind of nice to have scope, our secondary scope. So you've got that primary things, things you have to get done. And then you've got that, you know, a couple items that are, you know, if you run out of money, you're just going to cut those. So really they're secondary contingency if you want to look at that away. They're not necessary for the project for you to get your returns, but they're just nice to have. They're pretty things, et cetera. So you got to have build in some of those. And then, as I mentioned, the contingency for us, when we first underwrite a deal, we go in with a higher contingency. And as, you know, usually around 20% for a big value add, I'm going to put a 20% contingency on an initial pro formas until we get closer to closing. We've walked all the units. We got a, we got a hard bid from the GC and then we'll reduce it down to, you know, 12, 15%, maybe a little bit lower, but you're always going to have some contingency component to kind of give you that buffer for when things don't go as planned. And also just to give you the flexibility, you know, you might go in thinking, you know, like in our case, this 37,000 per renovation, we went in thinking one thing. And then after all of us and the designers and the creative team, we all spoke, we decided let's try and do this other thing. And so we had to do a change order and end up costing us, you know, like $1,500 more per unit, but that was already in the contingency. So we were, we were okay. We had that additional flexibility. So you do your best to try and you know, build in everything you can possibly think of on that initial scope. But if you forget something, that's okay. That's what the contingency line is for. Yeah. And then, and then sometimes, sometimes they just don't work, you know, so don't try and force it. You know, if you, if you're trying and you're doing everything you can and you know, some deals just don't work and that's the trick, you know, sometimes, you know, brokers always use this value add term on deals as a kind of, you know, I don't know, as, as a lure to people thinking that there is some solution to it if you just renovate it to a high enough degree. And that's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, sometimes there is no renovation you can do to a property. It's just the property is what the property is. And we've certainly come across deals like that. And trust me, from a, you know engineering perspective, from a, you know, a developer perspective, you love to go in and do these big value adds because they're fun. But you've also just got to restrain yourself and know that, you know, not every deal is going to be a value add deal, even if the broker says value add. Yeah, I, I think every every OM I've seen from brokers in the last you know two years has said value add on it. You know, it do, it doesn't matter. They're they're trying they're trying to get everybody just to open up. You know, click the email, open it up, and and make a phone call. Well, we're yeah. we're about out of time here, so you know I'll say thanks to both of you guys for coming on the show. One more question for each of you, um, and Joseph, you go first. How can people get in touch with you? So people can get in touch with me via email, just info at triarchrep.com or they can go to our website. We just finished updating it. It's www.triarcrep.com. And then I'm always pretty active on LinkedIn. So reach out, connect with me and let me know you heard me on this podcast. I'd love to get in touch with you. Perfect. Yeah, and that's, uh, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And incidentally, you know, LinkedIn is where, where we met. Actually, I met Heschel on LinkedIn as well. So that's, that's a great, great place to find people in this business. All right, Heschel, same question for you. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, so firstly, I just want to thank you both, um, mm-hmm. Brian, for, for bringing me on and, and facilitating, and Joseph for the, for the value and, and taking my questions. Um, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I try to be active on there as much as I can. So um, just my name on LinkedIn. All right, there you go. 
Now, now, Joseph, thanks for coming on. You have a bold strategy with the heavy value ads, and, and it's worked very well for you. You know, it's, it's something that not a lot of people, you know, like to do. They don't like to deal with, with a lot of hair on it. I also love the systems you've got set up to streamline the asset management. And Heschel, I really enjoy your, your hunger for knowledge and also how you quickly put it into action. You know, I, I think you, you do a lot of, you, you speak little and do a lot, which is, you know, something that I, 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 I highly prize. So thanks again to both of you for being on the show today. You guys brought a ton of value. And I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.